people to say that it's the law of the Lord. And this is where we get to this idea that I would like that to be true about my life, but I don't know that I have the strength to do it. All right, so that's the second passage. Here's the third one. We looked at this third one yesterday. But Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. According to this passage, the people of the new covenant were going to be people that would be careful to do everything that God said. These are predictions and prophecies of New Testament Christianity. And I would suggest that if our view of New Testament Christianity is that we come to church on Sunday and we come to church on Wednesday, but our real passion during the week are our careers, which that's a good thing. But if that becomes the thing that matters more than anything else, or anything else that you could substitute with with things with God, The question would be, are you really living the new covenant lifestyle that was predicted in the old covenant? Now, what we're looking at this morning is how Jesus' suffering on the cross is a unique part of the new covenant that inspires us and motivates us to be the people that we're supposed to be. Suffering is one of the biggest objections that people have to serving God. Uh, My father, for example, my mom and dad, they either believe that there's no God because of the suffering that happens in the world or that if there is a God, he's not worth uh, serving because he's allowed these wicked things to happen in this life. A lot of for a lot of Christians, one of the reasons that we lose our strength and our motivation to serve God is because of the suffering that comes into our life, even after becoming a Christian. I think it's interesting in Hebrews chapter 10 when the writer of Hebrews says, uh, recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle. Do you know what the New Testament teaches? That you get enlightened and then suffering comes. And then for some people, they fall away because of that. Now, if I was sitting across the table from somebody that was going through unspeakable suffering, there's there's no quick thing that I can say to them that's suddenly going to make them feel okay. But what you can tell somebody is that Jesus came to his own people and his own people did not receive him. When you compare Christianity to all the other religions, one of the unique things about Christianity is that God came down to man and suffered the worst kind of suffering anybody could experience. Because he was innocent. And so we know that Jesus can be our sympathetic high priest. This is something that is unique to the new covenant that he suffered for us. He came into human flesh and suffered. And this is something that the Christian is supposed to lean into when we're going through suffering, knowing that our God knows what we're going through because he experienced it. So we're going to be looking at Jesus' suffering on the cross. Um, this, this moment of Jesus on, on the cross I think naturally breaks up into two sections. We're not going to look at the moment of his actual death but we're going to look at the way that he was mistreated and made fun of while he was on the cross. So look at Mark chapter 15, and we're going to read verses 16 through 32. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, that could be up to 200 people, by the way, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. 
And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them, to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Uh, as we approach this text, let me, it, we're, we're going to have a lot of other passages on the PowerPoint that, that connect to this, this passage we just read. This is a scene in the Gospels that a, a lot of other passages of the Bible say something about. Let me just show you a couple things that help us understand what's happening here that Paul wrote, for example. So in Philippians 2.8, it says that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And then notice how he says, even death on a cross. One of the most humiliating and uh, just... Uh, shameful ways that you could die in this time period was the cross. Everybody looked at you as a criminal. And you notice that what we see Jesus doing here is humbling himself. What I learned from this is that if we're going to follow Jesus' example in this text, the only kind of person that's going to do that is the humble person. Notice, though, something else that Paul said. 1 Corinthians one twenty three: We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Do you imagine Paul going from city to city in the book of Acts and he's preaching first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. And by and large, the Jews think that this is something that is just weird. They, they're tripping up over the things that Paul's teaching. It doesn't make sense to them. They expected the Messiah to come and destroy the Roman Empire. So it doesn't make sense to them. And then you go to the, to the Gentiles, to the Romans, and you say, hey, the guy that you guys crucified, he's actually the king of the world. He's the real Caesar. And to them, that just sounds foolish. By the way, if you were going to invent a religion that was going to change the whole world, do you see how countercultural Christianity was to its own day? A lot of people say that, that Jesus was fitting a certain culture of his day, and Christianity fit a certain culture of its day. Do you see that Jews and Gentiles both thought that this was crazy? If you were going to start a religion that would change the world, it would not have been what we see in the New Testament which to me is an indicator that what Jesus has started was a real thing. By the way, something else that is interesting about this text is the ironic mocking that Jesus is experiencing here. Ironically, every king needs to be proclaimed king, otherwise he's just somebody who thinks he's king, but he's not really. In this text, people are mockingly calling him the king. Uh, every king needs to have a throne. And ironically, his throne becomes the cross in this moment. Every king needs to have kingly attire. And ironically, they, they mockingly put the kingly attire on him. In verse 29, the people are saying that you would rebuild the temple in three days. Come down now so you can get that accomplished. But ironically, the only way that the temple of his body would be resurrected in three days is if he stayed on the cross. 
You notice in verse 31 that the people are saying, He saved others. He can't save Himself. Come down now. The truth is, if He was ultimately going to save other people, He had to stay on the cross and not save Himself. You want to know how you can help other people? By not saving yourself. It comes at the expense of sacrificing your time and your money and your energy. If you want to transfer life to other people, it comes at the cost of the death of you. This is what 2 Corinthians talks about. So Jesus is doing all of that in this text. Let me point out one other thing before we imagine what's happening in this scene. Simon of Cyrene is an interesting guy here. Simon of Cyrene carries the cross, and he's mentioned in Matthew, and he's mentioned in Luke, but there are two names added to Simon of Cyrene that the other Gospels don't add. Mark adds Alexander and Rufus. Now, we don't know anything about Alexander in other parts of the Bible, but do you know anywhere that the New Testament mentions Rufus, a guy named Rufus? Uh, in Romans 16, verse 13, it says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Now, why is that important? Well, the, the writer of the, the Gospel of Mark is probably written to a Roman audience. Romans is written to who? A Roman audience. Can you imagine if Rufus was a member of this Roman church and the Gospel of Mark was read out loud to everybody in their hearing? And then after the service was over, people could have gone up to Rufus and gone, Hey, was that really your dad that carried the cross? And he could have said, Yep, that was him. Uh, Second-hand eyewitness testimony. What is it that happens in this scene? In verse 16, Jesus has already been scourged, which means his hands were tied to a post and he was whipped with a cat of nine tails, which was a whip that had chunks of metal and bone in it. You can imagine his back opening up and all the suffering that he went through. And he goes into the governor's headquarters with the whole battalion. I mentioned that that could be up to 200 people. That's how big a battalion was. Now, try to keep that in mind as we think about this scene. When Jesus is brought into the governor's headquarters, they mistreat him and they mock him. They they give him a kingly robe and they twist together a crown of thorns. Normally a crown is made of gold or silver. And they they twist together thorns and they put it on his head. By the way, what's the first time in the Bible that we read about thorns and thistles? It's after the curses in Genesis chapter 3. It's almost as if Jesus is experiencing the full brunt of the curses on his head. And they start mocking him, and they're saying, Hail, King of the Jews! But the the mocking gets ramped up. They take a reed, which would be like a scepter, and they strike him on the head. Have Have you ever had a cut on your head? You know how much blood comes out of your ear or your head? There's a lot of veins there. Every time they would strike him on the head, those thorns would go deeper and deeper, and then they start spitting on him. Uh, and I, in my mind, I used to imagine that it was like 10 or 15 people spitting on him. If indeed it's the whole battalion, like verse 16 says, it's up to 200 people spitting on him. Fulfilling Isaiah 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. They take him then out after taking the, the purple clothes off of him and reopening the wounds. They take him out to the place of execution and he has to walk tell, to Golgotha. Now, we know in John 19, verse 17, he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. He starts out by walking. 
Can you imagine after being up all night, Jesus went through six trials. He went through three with the Jews and then three with the Romans and they were filled with injustice. Jesus would have been exhausted at this point. He begins by carrying what would have probably been the cross beam. I don't know if you've seen people like walking around a city with a full cross that has a wheel on it and they're trying to make a statement about something. Uh, back then they would have actually carried the cross beam, which is called the patibulum. And that weighed about 150 pounds. And so Jesus begins by carrying that, but Simon of Cyrene has to come and help him along with it. And eventually Jesus gets to Golgotha. When he gets there, they offer him this painkiller drink and he doesn't take it. He's going to experience the full force of this event. But I have a question. When Jesus gets to Golgotha, why is this place called Golgotha? Place of the skull. Well, some people have suggested that uh, the hill that he was crucified on, if indeed it was a hill, it looks like a skull. Maybe that's part of the reason. Other people have suggested that because this is a place of execution, it would make sense that there's a lot of skulls there, so it's the place of the skull. Ironically, though, do you remember the promise in Genesis chapter 3 that the, the, the son of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent? This is the place where the skull of the, serp, the serpent is crushed when Jesus uh, conquers death after these events. The Gospels don't detail the actual moment in verse 24. It says it in just a couple simple words where it says, and they crucified him. They would have stripped him completely naked, nailed his hands to the cross beam, nailed his feet to the upright beam, and there he was, the Son of God, standing on the cross, on the cross, so everybody could see him. And while he's up on the cross, the Romans are treating Jesus like, uh, like some kind of object to get everything that they can from him because they're dividing up his garments. Psalm 22, verse 18, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. There they are with the inscription, taking everything they can from him. He doesn't have much. And they're saying, King of the Jews. You notice, by the way, that when Jesus is on the cross, who's, cross, who's crucified between him, on either side of him? You've got two robbers fulfilling, I think, Isaiah 53, verse 13, that he was going to be numbered with the transgressors. Everybody would look at him as a criminal because he's between two criminals. And there he is on the cross, and ironically, there's going to be three waves of mocking. The first wave of mocking comes from the passerbys. I guess people would have been crucified on, on roads that people would walk by so that these people could be examples to, for the Roman Empire that you don't transgress the Romans. And these people are mocking Jesus as they walk by. I have a question. What kind of person mocks somebody who's bleeding out on a cross? What kind of person does that? The second wave of mocking comes from the Jewish leaders. Now, do you think the scribes and the Pharisees were the kind of people who typically would go pop some popcorn and then watch somebody crucified on a cross? you think they were that kind of pe person? I don't think they would typically want to go see something like that. But in this case, it's like they're reveling in their success and they're mocking him to one another as if they, don't even, they can't even look him in the face and mock him. They're mocking him to one another, saying all kinds of terrible things. The third wave of mocking comes from the robbers themselves. It's almost like everybody's converging against Jesus in this scene. Can you imagine the robbers looking in at Jesus and making fun of him in this moment? Now, we know from Luke's account that one of them repented while he was on the cross. Uh, in Luke 22:42 to 43, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, uh, we're going to come back to that in just a moment. But I have a couple things to think through about this scene. The first question that I want to ask about this scene is why was Jesus suffering? Why did he go through that? And this is, by the way, the, a question that a lot of people ask when they're suffering. Why, why am I going through these things right now? Do you have that question right now in your life? Why am I having to bear these burdens? Why am I having to experience these things? Well, let's ask that question about Jesus on the cross. Notice how the people are mocking Jesus. When you see how they mock him, you can also see what they were so offended by. The text begins and it ends in a similar way. Where in verse 18, they're saying, Hail, King of the Jews! You think you're the King? And then verse 32, people are making fun of him because he said that he was the King of Israel. Now, alright, what, what do kings have the right to do in the ancient world? They have the right to execute you. They have the right to tell you what to do. They have a right to tax you. They have, they have some degree of authority over your life. And Jesus was somebody who lacked the credentials. He didn't come from a kingly family. He, 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 he didn't meet any of the earthly standards that the king would have. And I think when Jesus was walking around calling himself the king, that it was so offensive to them that this guy who doesn't have the credentials, this guy cannot have control in, over my life. They didn't want to have to submit to him. That um, come up with all these skeptical sounding arguments about whether or not the Bible is really reliable and they come up with all these scientific reasons on why we shouldn't be believing in the Bible and a lot of that is just not really good science anyways. But I don't know if you've ever been intimidated by people that mocked Christianity and they seem to have some substance to what they said. And I would suggest that the deeper thing that's really behind the mocking is an unwillingness to submit to the king. I think, I'm not saying this is true for everybody, but I think a lot of people, the reason that they don't believe is because at the end of the day, they don't want to change their morals. You think about Second uh, Peter 3.3, 3, that there's going to be scoffers in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They're saying all these things, but what's at the root of it? Is the root of it that they've come to these great intellectual arguments and that's why they don't believe? Or is it actually more shallow than that? That I just don't want to change and now I'm going to legitimize my unbelief with all these smart sounding arguments, but really at the end of the day, I just don't want to change. Um, once I started seeing that the Bible taught this, that this, again, this is not the only reason people refuse to believe, but it's, I think it's a common reason. When I started realizing this, I started having Bible studies with people that would have questions about, can we trust in the Bible? Is, uh, is God really real? And, all these, and they would mock Christianity and all these kinds of things. And what I started telling people it was this, that, look, I'm willing to talk to you about the reasons to believe, but let me ask you a question first, and please be honest with me. Is there something that you know the Bible commands you to do that you don't want to do? Or there's something that the Bible tells you to stop doing that means too much to you. And please be honest with me, is that really what's going on? And when I've asked that question, more times than not, the person says, it's actually this issue. And we start talking about that. And then, guess what? All the questions about the reliability of the Bible and all that, they're still questions, but they're not the most pressing thing in those conversations anymore. I think this shows us, by the way, 
why is it that the world treats us in wrong ways as we try to serve the Lord? If Jesus was suffering because people didn't want to submit to what he had to say, if we represent the king who has authority over people's lives, people don't want to submit to that, and so they mock us because they want to have control over their life. I don't know if you've ever experienced this before. Maybe you've lost a friend or a family member. Uh, A family relationship has been ruptured because you became a Christian. It brought all kinds of trial and suffering. You know that the reproaches of Christ have fallen on you now. And that the reason that they're treating you that way is not necessarily because they hate you. It's because they hate what you represent. I don't know if you've ever been at a restaurant before and you've gone to eat with a bunch of people and the first person orders uh, like a fat, juicy hamburger and the next person orders something that's not very healthy, the next person orders something that's not very healthy and then finally like one of the last people goes, I'm going to have a salad because that's how salad eaters talk, I guess. Um, And then everybody swings and looks at the salad eater and what do they start saying about the salad eater? You think you're all better than us, right? Huh? Well, why are all those people saying that? Because they feel a little insecure about the hamburger that they just ordered. On a much grander scale, when we're representing the light and we're trying to serve the king, it's automatically threatening to people. And it's going to cause us to suffer for the Lord. By the way, our personality better not add to that suffering. If people are going to be offended by us, let it be by the truth that we speak in love. But this explains why we suffer sometimes in the Lord. Now, notice something else about this. I want us to think about Jesus' example in this scene. There's a couple other passages of the Bible that give direct application to what we just looked at. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. It's not going to be on the PowerPoint. 1 Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 24, Peter is going to give a direct application to this moment when Jesus is on the cross. And the text says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, and have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. If you were to read through the totality of 1 Peter, what kind of suffering was this audience going through? When you think about persecution in the first century, this is what I oftentimes think about, is the physical stuff that they went through. If you read through 1 Peter, though, by and large, the thing that Peter's writing about is what people are saying about the Christians and saying to the Christians. They're going to be spoken against as evildoers. Uh, People are going to be mocking them. And when Jesus is suffering on the cross, the Gospels, do they emphasize the mocking or the physical pain? They emphasize the mocking, not the physical pain. Maybe because the mocking is really the harder thing to deal with than the physical pain. But you notice that what Peter is saying here is that when Jesus was mocked, he didn't fight back. When people were spitting on him, he did not threaten them. The, gospel, the, the book of First Peter is saying that Jesus was like a silent lamb. Now, 
What is the easiest way to sin when you're suffering? It's with your mouth, right? If you start sinning with your mouth, that's like the low-hanging fruit, and it's going to start leading to other things as well. Jesus, in the midst of his suffering, did not threaten back. He didn't fight back. But notice why Peter is saying this in this context. Go back up to 1 Peter 2.13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or his governor sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. All right. Have any of you felt like over the last few years you've suffered because of the president or the former president or whatever? And has it caused you to write a lot of things on Facebook and maybe look down on brethren who have different political views than you do? And it's created division. This text is, in this context, who's the, who's the Caesar? Who's the emperor? It's Nero, and he's killing Christians. And then he says, in the midst of a political environment like that, you watch your mouth. How are we doing with that? Skip down to verse uh, 18 in this context. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. How many of you have bosses at work that you don't like? It's hard, right? And this text is saying that you might have a boss or a slave master. It was a different kind of slavery system than what happened in the United States. It was indentured servitude. It was a way of getting out of debt, oftentimes in this time period. But anyways, if you had an unjust uh, master, you still respect him. Uh, in America, in the United States, if you have a bad boss, what's your responsibility toward the, towards that person? You watch your mouth. You watch what you say. Jesus suffered... And he didn't fight back. He didn't threaten back. In America, we can get a different job if we want to. We can switch jobs. That's fine if you want to do that. But as long as that person's your boss, you treat them with respect. This is the example of Jesus. Go down to 3.1. 1 Peter 3.1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Here you've got wives that are suffering under the fact that they've got husbands that are not Christians. And this text is telling the wives that you watch your mouth. You don't start trying to yell at your husband about becoming a Christian. You watch how you, how you speak to him. Have you ever had family problems? In the family, what, what are some of the easiest ways to start sinning against each other? With your mouth. Words of anger. And then Jesus' example on the cross applies whether it's in the government, whether it's in your workplace, or whether it's in your family. Think about how Jesus dealt with this. Now, here's, if you were to squish a bug, what comes out of the bug? Bug guts do. If you squish, squish an orange, what comes out of an orange? Orange juice. All right. If you feel pressed in by suffering and you kind of, you're backed into a corner because of all your suffering, what comes out of your mouth? What comes out of you? The bug guts were always inside the bug. The juice was always, always inside the orange. Whatever comes out of you is revealing what's in your heart. Thank God that he lets us go through things that reveal what's in there so it can change. How did Jesus... What was Jesus' psychology in this moment that helped him go through the insults that were being hurled against him? You notice in 1 Peter 2.23 that he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 
In the moment when Jesus was on the cross, I guess one of the things he was thinking about is that one day proper judgment's going to happen. Now, in that moment, Jesus didn't have judgment belonging to him. It was eventually going to be given to him, but not in that moment. Have you ever had a time before, maybe where you were growing up or you've seen this as a parent, where brother hurts his sister and dad's going to come home from work? And then mom says to the brother that hurt the sister, you just wait till dad comes home and he's going to deal with this. And for the girl that was hurt, can she take immediate comfort knowing that all accounts are going to be settled the right way and she doesn't have to fight back because it's going to be taken care of? One day, our father's going to come back. And I think the more that that is a reality to us, the more we're going to be able to endure hardships knowing that God is going to take care of it one day. I don't have the power or the wisdom or the knowledge to judge the right way. But Jesus does, God does, and He's going to come back and take care of it. Notice finally, what is it that Jesus gained in the midst of His suffering? Uh, people will say, no pain, no gain. Jesus went through a lot of suffering, and what is it that He gained in the midst of this? Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that is set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You notice that this text says that Jesus endured and uh, He despised the shame of the cross. He, he went through it without giving up. We're, tomorrow night we're going to look at uh, the example of Job and we're going to expand on that idea then. But he despised the shame. To despise something doesn't mean that you hate it. To despise something means you just don't think anything of it. If you despise somebody, it means you just don't think about them. For Jesus, it says that he despised the shame. You ever been in a restaurant before and uh, the food comes... And you're going to get ready to pray for the food. And you start, oh, I hope, can we just do this real quick? I hope nobody notices this. Ashamed. Sometimes we think too highly of the shame. And it causes us to douse our zeal and our enthusiasm for the Lord. Jesus was somebody who was able to go through this suffering and go through this shame without thinking anything about it. What was it that helped him do it in verse 2? In verse 2, it says, oops, it says that it was for the joy that was set before him. The joy that was set before him. I have a question about that. What was the joy that Jesus was thinking about on the cross that was set before him? Maybe the joy was being back with the Father. Right? He talks about that in John chapter 17, that I'm going to be glorified with the glory that I had before I came here. He's going to be back with the Father. Is that the joy that was set before Jesus? I think that's probably part of it. But let me ask it this way. Is there anything that Jesus gained through his suffering that he did not have before his suffering? It's the church, right? It's us. His suffering was what allowed him to have the bride, the church. This means, by the way, that when Jesus was suffering on the cross, the thing he was thinking about was, I'm going to have the saints in Savannah, Georgia one day. I'm going to have the saints in Atlanta, Georgia one day. I'm going to have the saints in San Diego, California. I'm going to have saints all across the world one day, and this is helping me get through this suffering right now. Uh, this gives us the secret in how we endure our suffering. 
If the joy set before Jesus was you, that means the joy set before you is Jesus. One day you get to be back with your knight in shining armor who came to save you. And I have to think that while Jesus was on the cross, He started to get a taste of that because of the thief on the cross that repented. Now hear hear me out on this. Jesus is crucified between two robbers. Why is He crucified between two robbers? I think it's ironic, and hear me out, and I think I'm right about this. On the crosses, you had one robber. In the middle, Jesus is a robber. And then on the other side, there's another robber. Mark chapter 3, verse 27, Jesus compares himself to a robber that enters the strong man's house and plunders back his goods. What is he saying by that? That he's coming into the world, which is Satan's territory, and he's stealing back what always belonged to him. You've got two unrighteous robbers, and in the middle, the righteous robber. Stealing back what always belonged to him. The question for us this morning to think about is whether or not Jesus has stolen your heart. Are you His possession? Uh, Has He captivated you? This is something that is unique to the New Covenant. The suffering of the Son of God on the cross. And when we look at what He's done for us, this is something that's supposed to motivate us to handle suffering the right way, to be able to endure it, to still have joy in the midst of it, because we know that these are just the birth pains that are leading us to be with our Savior forever. Thank you for your good attention. We're going to be looking at another thing that's unique to the New Covenant that gives us inspiration and motivation to do whatever He says. Thank you for your good attention.